Hello and welcome to the Federal Low Code Trailblazers podcast. This is season two, episode number three, which is part of the ATARC Federal IT newscast. Uh, this episode will, will focus on manufacturing low code talent. My name is Bill Bunce. I am an account executive with Pegasystems, and I am the industry chair for the ATARC Low Code Working Group, which is a subset of the ATARC DevOps technology pillar. A low-code platform provides a factory approach used to collaborate, innovate, and deliver critical applications um, from one inclusive environment using a graphical user interface instead of traditional hand-coded computer programming. Our goal with this podcast is to meet with government and industry leaders who leverage low-code on real projects to better understand the challenges that they had to overcome and the benefits that they realized. My guests this month uh, are Robin Reese, Senior Advisor from the Office of Capital um, at the uh, Department of Interior. Uh, also, we have uh, Bob Kasser, uh, who's the Chief Revenue Officer at uh, Ravature Inc. and Emily Camardo, who is the Director of Operations at SourceLogic. Welcome, Robin, Bob, and Emily. Great to be here. Uh, why don't we kick? Why don't we kick things off uh, by having each of you just introduce yourself? If you could um, share your relationship with low code, and maybe Robin, if you could go first. Sure, I'm happy to give that a go. Um, hi to you, Bill. Hello to the audience. Happy to be here with uh, with the colleagues that are joining us today. My name is Robin Reese. I am a Senior Advisor for Human Capital Transformation in the Office of Human Capital within the Department of the Interior's Office of the Secretary. I know that's a mouthful, but we're a pretty big department with lots of component organizations. There are many parts of the Department of the Interior that are using low-code platforms, and the investment that I manage uh, specifically leverages low-code web development software in addition to artificial intelligence and machine learning to reduce the need for custom code. Um, for my initiative, that use of low code was deliberate, and I hope to talk more about that later during this podcast. But by way of background for your audience, Bill, I'd like to offer that I've grown up in the information technology community in the federal government, and I've had an insider's view of custom applications that require official change requests, backlog prioritization, identification of funding, scheduling for enhancements and release. And all of that takes time and results in users or employees waiting for the functionality they need. I believe that that insider's view has given me this understanding of how important data availability is to being able to take advantage of low or no code options. And quite frankly, in the world of human capital, which is where I sit today, we have some work to do before we can truly benefit from the efficiencies and speed that low code platforms can use. So I come today with information on what we can do in parallel to taking baby steps into low code software usage. And I believe and hope that that will be valuable for your listeners to hear because the experience that I've had throughout my career in the federal government represents what I would call the real world for many federal entities. Thanks for having me here today. Perfect, thank you, Robin. Bob, you wanna go next? Yeah, Bill, thanks for having me and, uh, and uh... It's great to join uh, my fellow panelists here, and uh, and uh, and it's great to join the audience. Uh, I'm Bob Gasser. I joined Reviture about uh, three years ago after 32 years in financial services. 
Um, I'm the CRO, as Bill alluded to. Um, Revisure is the largest hire train deploy firm in the United States. In other words, we've trained close to 9,000 software engineers over the last uh, five years, and they come from uh, a variety of different backgrounds. Um, you know, I'd say half are CS and STEM, and the other half are really liberal arts majors. And, um, you know, we, we basically, we serve eight of the top 10 systems integrators uh, in the world, uh, three of the top five consulting firms, a variety of uh, federal contractors six of the top 10 banks in the United States. So we have a pretty broad, broad portfolio of enterprise clients. Uh, and really we're following their strategic uh, path, their tech stack, and that's evolving rapidly uh, into low code and sometimes no code applications, right? So we have enterprise technology partners. Uh, we're very proud to call PEGA uh, a partner. We're a, an authorized training partner for PEGA. We've trained about probably 300 uh, folks, uh, PEGA developers over the course of the past, probably two years. Uh, and we see that as being a burgeoning part of our business. Um, and I think one of the interesting things about it is it opens up the top of the funnel in a very ful fulsome way in terms of a career pathway uh, in the information technology space. So if you think about it, there's maybe 70,000 folks that graduate with a CS degree uh, in the United States. Uh, the estimates are there's probably demand for probably 400,000 folks. Um, so what we've done with the top of that funnel is we've really democratized it. We have French literature majors that, that flourish in our program. We have music majors that flourish in our right. program. Emily. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Happy to talk more about low code and how we train our people to be experts in implementing low code solutions. So as Bill said, we implement PEGA, which is um, a low code technology um, that Bill definitely knows a lot about. Um, and so our business model, uh, we typically really smart engineers um, don't necessarily have um, such a computer science uh, training program um, to get them up to speed on PEGA. Um, so we do uh, strictly in-house training for low code. Um, and we found that model to be really successful um, in supporting our uh, mainly federal clients here. Thanks, Emily. That's great. Um, so organizations of all sizes are increasing their investment in low code, you know, with the promise of being able to deliver apps faster and cheaper. According to analysts, low code or no code, Bob, as you pointed out, uh, will account for anywhere from 22 to 40, 44% of all new applications built by the end of next year, 2023. I, I guess my question is, um, does low code make hiring software engineers obsolete? Uh, Bob, maybe we can start with you. Uh, you know, I think it's, I don't know if it makes it obsolete. I do think that the trend will continue. Um, and I think that uh, at least uh, in the commercial space and the enterprise space, um, you're seeing a lot of firms that are really starting to winnow down the proprietary applications that they need to support their business, right? So the, you know, the, 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 the notion of a Java engineer will not go away, um, but I do think that that trend will continue. Um, so we see enterprise technologies uh, continue to flourish and continue to take away a lot of that proprietary development, um, but, uh, but I, I, don't, I don't think it's going away. Uh, but I do think it will probably balance out. So software as a service, uh, low code, uh, no code will continue to, to grow as a proportion of the total. Um, but Java engineers, I think, are, are not going to go. Away. And, there's, and there's, some, there's quite a bit of innovation in the Java space as well. Uh, you know, we teach 55 curricula today, but half of that is some derivative of Java. The other half would be enterprise technologies. Um, uh, like Pega. So, um, you know, I think we see the, it's just a, it's a balance, but I think at the end of the day, um, I think that number will probably approach something like 50% probably by the following year. 
Uh, at least that's what we're seeing in the tech stack amongst our uh, amongst our clients. Sure, that's great info. I appreciate it. I was trying to be just a little provocative. I didn't think yeah, that that's okay. we would yeah. stop hiring uh, <laughs> computer science majors. Robin, <laughs> Emily, your thoughts? Yeah, I'd love to jump in here and I'm by no means the expert on where the world of software engineering is going, but I appreciate the provocative question, Bill, because I think that we often uh, uh, stimulate dialogue and narrative around these extremes, right? It's going to be obsolete or yeah. it's going to be everywhere. And, and listen, we've just spent a major part of the last six years engaged in a narrative about how robots and AI will replace humans and eliminate jobs, yet that hasn't been the case. So to answer the question that you asked, my answer is no, low code makes more people able to see themselves as software engineers, just as Bob just said. And my belief is that software engineers will always be necessary and critical for the digital world we live in. They will always have their niche. And let's be real, someone has to develop the low code platform and software, right? Many of today's traditional software engineers will have the opportunity to expand into new digital territories like data-enabled and data-driven artificial intelligence and machine learning. And many of today's logically-oriented thinkers that are subject matter experts or that are business process engineers now have a way into also being technologists, just like we heard Emily say and Bob say as well. And so um, I, I think that uh, while, while the narrative, uh, it, uh, popular narrative tends to like the extremes, the reality here and the space of conversation from which I come from is that we all need to be digitally literate and data literate in a way that allows us to become our own technologists as we move into the future world of work. Of course, absolutely. Well, one of the advantages uh, discussed about low code is the ability to widen the range of people who can contribute to the development of applications. The second is, as we talked about, you know, you don't need a degree in computer science or software development to become a low code developer. I've even been told by some program managers, um, Emily, maybe you being one of them, that sometimes we prefer that low code developers not have a degree in software development. Emily, maybe we can start with you. You know, when recruiting uh, low code developers, what is it that you look for? Yeah, definitely. We look for typically people that have strong problem solving backgrounds. Um, we find that a lot with engineering students. Um, a lot of folks go into mechanical engineering and then realize, you know, that's not really what they want to be doing, um, working with their hands and on an assembly line or something like that. Um, so we find that a lot of like strong problem solving majors are really helpful. Um, I myself was a math major, um, learned a, a lot of how to communicate my thought process with um, the logic going through problems. So we look for people who have strong, as I said, strong problem solving, as well as being able to communicate um, both with clients and understanding what business users really want for at the end of the day um, to be able to build for successfully in the low code platform. That's great. Robin, um, can it be easier to, or in your opinion, is it easier to grow low, low code developers from within the organization or to hire them? You know, that's a great question, Bill. We need to do both. Uh, the risk of only growing from within is that those existing employees have very real 
and perceived constraints based on the way they've been conducting business to date. And those constraints could lead to a lack of creativity and process re-engineering, which quite frankly would render the low-code tools useless in terms of efficiency outcomes that we desire. Um, so I think that there's, there's a risk there uh, for only looking at existing employees. That said, we can't rely solely on new thinking that doesn't consider the real world constraints of rules and regulations, particularly in the federal space. So um, we need to give opportunities for our existing employees to become their own technologists. And then we need to infuse those teams with brand new thinking that um, you've probably heard this uh, around, the, around the federal space that we need to stretch the rubber band really wide mm. with fresh thinking. But we also then need to be realistic and calibrate the right amount of stretch in that rubber band that can be sustained long-term so that we don't break it. And that's where these combined teams of new talent and existing talent can really come together for the best outcomes. Gotcha. Yeah, Robin, I think that's a, that's a great point. You know, our CEO um, likes to talk about our associates as being continuous learning animals. And I think that's really what's needed in this environment, right? So the product cycles continue to condense, they continue to condense. So, you, you know, the, the perception that you're going to go into a career in software engineering and you're just going to do Java, I think is something that is probably antiquated, right? And I think one of the, one of the interesting things I think that the low code community and now the no code community is going to grapple with is the perception that it's not a great career pathway relative to being a Java software engineer. And it couldn't be, that couldn't be polar opposite than that. Um, you know, we, uh, if you try to find a PEGA CSA, CSSA certified person in Atlanta, that's like finding a purple unicorn. Um, so the market is really, is really, is really, uh, I think there's a, there's a price elasticity here too, that is starting to emerge and that you can do very well as a PEGA developer relative to a Java software engineer. And I think that's one of the things that the low code uh, community needs to dispel is that there's only one path uh, for, for even a CS major. Um, and that's something, you know, I think we, we, we are very, um, we evangelize on that point uh, very often. And to the point on workforce transformation, as you know, Bill, we, we partner with PEGA in terms of going into enterprises and looking at existing folks. And the interesting thing about the existing folks is they have a lot of subject matter expertise. So they can become very powerful contributors to um, the support of a PEGA implementation within a large enterprise. So it's probably a combination of both. It's a combination of new infused talent, some experienced talent, and then some folks that have been, you know, that have been upskilled um, or reskilled uh, into the PEGA platform. Yeah, and if I may, Bill, yeah, just sure. add Absolutely. Here quickly, uh, sure. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that I uh, also helped to lead ATARC's workforce transformation pillar mm -hmm. under the digital transformation uh, topic area. And I, I think it goes without saying, as, as Bob just said, that um, workforce transformation and digital transformation are synonymous, mm -hmm. right? You, it, we are in a day and age where the subject matter expertise has to become part of the technology development experience in order to actually make that digitization work and be effective for organizations. And so I just, I just wanted to make sure that before we pass too far away from the workforce transformation, that this notion of continual learning um, uh, goes hand in hand with enabling those people to also be sort of masters of their own domain and become their own technologists to deliver digital transformation. Agreed, 100%. You know, to pull on that thread a little bit that Bob mentioned in terms of, you know, Java developers and so on, you know, 
traditional software developers can often, you know, oppose low-code platforms, seeing them as, you know, a resume killer. Um, mm -hmm. Emily, do you have experience converting traditional software developers into low-code developers, and how do you do that? Yeah, our um, first few employees here were um, Java developers, had been Java developers for 10 years, and now they are um, two of our best Pega um, lead system architects. Um, so we have done that, I think, with Pega specifically as a low-code platform. It is based off of Java, so understanding the underlying technology of a low-code platform helps make that transition easier to know, hey, this is the same concepts that we've been using in different ways, and um, helps with once they picked it up, was able to teach other people who've had this similar background um, and how to um, interact with Pega and make it uh, just like a similar uh, to other experiences that they've had. Mm -hmm. With our training program that we have for our out of college um, students, we actually do teach them Java, um, CSS, uh, Java, uh, JavaScript, um, database languages before they even touch Pega. So we think it's really important that they still have um, an underlying understanding of uh, what goes into uh, Pega development. And I think that would be true across uh, other low-code systems as well. Yep. Great, appreciate it. You know, low-code platforms provide simple standard app features so programmers can, you know, spend time working on the more complex work. That's the, the basic concept. Um, uh, Robin, can you talk about, you know, building a team that maybe includes a combination of traditional software developers and low-code developers together, working together? Yeah, I can tell you that I've been at the Office of Human Capital Department of Interior for almost three years now. So I can't speak from the enterprise office of the CIO perspective with respect to uh, that, that question, but I can say that uh, from my small team's perspective on the initiative, the IT initiative that I manage, we have uh, this, this uh, really full team that is represented with traditional web developers uh, or low-code development software. We have data architects, we have data scientists, we have project managers, we have functional subject matter experts who understand the business space and the underlying data. We have visionaries, we have people like me who want to flip the raft we've all been sitting on and dump us out in the rapids. Um, so I think that that speaks to the need for these holistic teams that have a little bit of everything. And there are some things in any given um, information technology initiative where low-code software is the, the best answer to delivering that component of the initiative. There are going to be other elements where low-code software can't support because this particular piece is too specific and is, is too rules-based right. to, mm -hmm. to really lend itself to that. But we also have some things that we don't want to use custom code for, and we also don't necessarily want to use low-code software for because the outcome is ever-changing. And this is where I have the data science teams working with artificial intelligence and machine learning. So I suppose uh, the point that I would want to make here is that there's no single technology solution that can address all of the nuanced needs of an evolving technology initiative. Right. And to that point, there's no single skill set or, or type of person you would need on the team. I think it's, it's in my experience, I can tell you that we need them all and we need them all to be working together and understanding how those things are integrated. Yeah, you know, um, 
it's hard to every project is different. Um, but Emily, I, you know, when building an agile team, um, you know, what is the typical makeup of maybe citizen developers, program management, traditional developers? Um, in you know, how does that impact your hiring process and goals? Yeah, definitely. We um, our traditional teams are mainly Pega developers. Um, we like to incorporate citizen developers as um, it fits with the clients because we want to make sure that we're enabling our folks to um, take over the applications that we build long term, so they're not continuously paying um, folks for their support. Um, so what that typically looks like is we have a um, a Pega lead system architect um, and supported by some senior system architects and the majority being junior system architects. We like to have um, at least a program manager and a business architect. And then we always have an expert that is coming from more of your um, uh, traditional software development um, that can assist in what Robin was saying, integrating with other solutions, um, making sure that the infrastructure requirements are being met. Um, we've also had some engagements where we have determined that the best solution would be a different front end rather than Pega and had built that in React and had pulled in traditional web developers as well to support that. Gotcha. Um, Bob, from um, the scope of what Reviture does, do you guys work with um, reskilling employees um, to move into maybe a low code environment? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's what I was alluding to before is, uh, you know, for instance, going into a, um, and I'll, I'll use an enterprise as opposed to a federal uh, analogy, going into a, a bank that is now taking a piece of their back office operations and they're, and they're basically implementing PEGA um, uh, to modernize that. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so there, as I was alluding to earlier, there's a, there's a domain expertise there that you want to capture. And you want to make sure it's, I think it just makes the process that much more efficient. So um, they'll take some of their traditional Java software engineers, maybe even some folks that, you know, are more operational in nature. Um, folks that have never touched the line of code um, and they'll put them into a class together. Um, and uh, we've done hundreds and hundreds of those uh, reskilling programs uh, for folks. Uh, then I, and I think there is a domain expertise um, element there that's, that's vital. Um, to the efficiency of, um, of, of that support mechanism. Gotcha. Robin, what, in your opinion, what's the best way to identify employees who may want to learn about low code or, you know, uh, gain some new skills? Ask them. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that simple. You know, I, uh, when I was at the National Science Foundation under the Chief Information Officer, Dorothy Aronson, who's a fantastic mentor of mine, um, Dorothy set the example for me and for our organization where we embraced what we call the, the local IT innovators or the pioneers, she called them. These are people who had interest in developing their own technology solutions. They had the subject matter expertise because they sat in the program where the business was conducted. And rather than telling them, no, you can't do that. <laughs> That's not an enterprise IT. Mm. Uh, uh, at the National Science Foundation, they created mechanisms to give those people who were asked, would you like to play in this space, the opportunity to play in that space in, the, in a safe and secure environment. Um, those pioneers then became 
the groups of people who helped us incubate and test new ideas. Mm -hmm. And then those uh, that incubated uh, uh, new solutions, right? Let's call them low code solutions because now you're putting the ability to create and deploy technology to the field at the point of the need right in the hands of the people who need it. Um, uh, you know, there's some in the organization, we called them explorers who loved that somebody else built that and wanted to try it. So then we had this natural pipeline of, of sort of surfacing those who were interested in getting into this low code or being their own technologist space. And then that uh, morphed into those that could pilot it and help mature that solution. And then before you know it, we were able to enterprise it or take it to an enterprise IT solution where the consumers who were gonna wait for a perfect product could then take advantage of it. So my learning from that that I bring forward to my work at the Department of the Interior is just ask people what they're interested in doing. And if they'd like to get into that space, give them space to do it. That's great. Um... So Emily, you talked to us about the comprehensive program that SourceLogic puts your new employees, generally uh, recent college graduates through. You know, um, we talk about um, everything from citizen development, which, you know, you can become skilled in a matter of, of weeks, certainly. Um, how long does it take to become proficient, you know, as a, uh, a productive low-code developer or an architect? So as I, as I mentioned before, we do an eight to 10 week program um, about the after I would say 12 weeks, we can um, we're confident that our folks can be successful on a, a project, but it, we don't see until the, about six months into really hands on development work that they can be um, totally independent for what they're doing. Gotcha. No, that's really helpful. You know, um, getting through the hype into the real world uh, is, is definitely helpful. Um, yeah, here's a see it, the, yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say, you, can, you should see how confident these folks are after 12 weeks, and then it comes crashing down when they introduce the real world. So, <laughs> definitely is a challenge for them to pick it up. Understood. Um, Bob, maybe this is just a crazy question. Um, you know, can things like artificial intelligence play a role in uh, identifying candidates or employees within a workforce that could be good candidates for something like low code? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that uh, that's one of the processes we go through, not only in terms of our recruiting, where it really is all about aptitude, ability, motivation, grit, and and some, and, and I think mm -hmm. Emily uh, um, alluded to it, you know, some reasoning and problem solving skills, right? So unearthing that is, I think, becoming a, a more and more mature AI function. Um, and, it, and it continues to evolve. And, um, and I think the other thing that we try to do is we try to feed, it's a feedback loop in terms of the folks that go through the training, who are the most successful, what is the process that they went through, what, you know, where did they, um, you know, what was the um, curricula that they followed, um, who was the trainer. I mean, it's a, and it's a constantly evolving process. It's, and as Emily alluded to, it's, you know, 10 to, for us, it's 10 to 12 weeks, very similar. Um, and a lot of our work is, uh, a lot of our, the taxonomy of what we do, uh, or the pedagogy of the training is really focused on, ped, it's really project-based. So it's about, you know, building out, you know, PEGA uh, capabilities. And so that you're not, you know, you're not hit with that, you know, that cold water in your face. 
uh, when you are deployed. Although I agree with Emily, it does take time, right? It's not, it's not an immediate process in terms of uh, being job ready or return on investment. Uh, but that, that, that is, I think, one of the most fascinating things. Uh, and as we talk about, you know, expanding the funnel, you know, it's about how do we include more people in this as opposed to exclude them, right? So when you, sure. you know, when you apply as a software engineer to be a software engineer, let's say you're a chemical engineer, uh, I'm not even going to name a school, but you, you go in and you, you place your resume into a top three bank in the United States, more likely than not, it's going to be sent into a, some ether, Right, because those folks are very self-selected. They and they use us to complement. I think what is a very selfless, self-selected recruiting process on their on their part. So, um, if you want to open up the funnel, AI needs to continue to evolve in terms of evaluating talent, um, and not only in terms of reskilling, but in terms of skilling. Um, so, uh, I'm, I'm, I think that's a fascinating space right now. Uh, is is really how do we how do we drill down and really find. Uh, folks' core competencies that they may not even know they have, right? right. Um, and I think that's incredibly important for low code because, as I said, you really need to, to, to expand that funnel. Um, you need to be uh, uh, democratic uh, in your assessment process. Gotcha. Well, those are all of the questions I have prepared. Maybe we can just close it out. Robin, uh, Emily, Bob, Robin, maybe we can start with you. Any, any closing thoughts on the topic? Yeah, absolutely. I think this has been a really valuable conversation for, for me to hear from Emily and Bob and, and to be uh, sparked to think a little bit more critically about some of the questions that you asked, Bill. And I would say that when we think about the world of technology and where it's going and how it can really um, allow our organizations to have some kind of survivability into the future as things continue to evolve, um, we can't downplay the need to move away from a notion where we're doing this one and done reskilling and really move toward a place where we're constantly learning and we're becoming what I call quote unquote ever ready, where we're leveraging low code, no code, advanced technology options to always be predicting uh, what the organization is going to need and then putting the empowerment in the hands of the employees to really leverage that technology to help them identify where their skills might be transferable and open up opportunities for them to become their own technologists. And so if we can continue moving in that direction and sparking conversation in that direction and really changing the culture of the workforce to one of a continual learning workforce that is empowered to meet their own needs at the point of need quickly, um, then I love to continue being involved in this conversation. We really appreciate that uh, you all are providing platforms to have this dialogue. Appreciate it. Thanks, Robin. Closing thoughts, Emily? Yeah, well, we are uh, filming this at the end of March, um, which is Women's History Month. Um, so I do need to mention how we have found PEGA and low code to be able to increase our diversity in our workplace. Um, and we found that a lot with um, increasing the amount of women that we have here. Traditional software development, it has a lot of barriers to entry. Um, I tried to be, uh, I was a computer science minor in college and there's just a lot that you go through um, there. It's very male, white dominated. Um, so being able to open up, um, like Bob has said before, with these non-traditional backgrounds of French majors, but also just people who haven't had the exposure to um, traditional heavy computer science software development, um, having that be a tool to make sure that we're diversifying our work, work place as well.
Oh, absolutely. I'm really glad you brought that up, Emily. Um, Bob, closing thoughts? You know, Emily, you stole a lot of my thunder. Um, but I was what I wanted to mention at the end was, well, first of all, thank you, Bill, for facilitating this conversation. It was, it was really enjoyable. Um, there is a DE&I element here as well. Um, and um, if you think about it, HBCUs today confer only 6% of their grads with, with computer science degrees, 16% uh, with STEM degrees. Um, and so I think there is a DE&I element here too that needs to be um, you know, highlighted, um, you know, opening up to associate's degree holders, tremendous female community, tremendous uh, people of color community. Um, and, um, and so I think that that's an element of the low code, um, uh, uh, topic or in a more fulsome way, but, um, but thank you. And, uh, it's great, great session. Great. Appreciate it. Well, Robin, Bob, Emily, I want to thank you for your time and your insights that you provided today until next time, everyone, uh, when we have another conversation, uh, with government trailblazers on the use of low code and government, my name is Bill Bunce. Thank you.